0: You're listening to The Pet Factor, news on pet health, wellness, and the latest in veterinary medicine. Hi, welcome to the next episode of The Pet Factor. I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. And I'm Brittany. And this week we're going to be talking about pancreatitis. Um, we talked a little bit about um, diabetes the last couple weeks, and that also mm-hmm. involves the pancreas. Yeah. The pancreas is, is has two functions, one is uh, to secrete the digestive enzymes, and also the Uh, produce the insulin that helps regulate the blood sugar. And so so a lot of times if one thing is affected, the other is too. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about the digestive enzymes, they're produced in the pancreas in an inactive form. So that way it's not going to digest itself. When it gets released into the intestinal tract, then it becomes activated. And that's where it starts to digest the food. In cases um, where you get severe inflammation of the pancreas, these enzymes can actually be activated inside the pancreas. And so the pancreas does start to digest itself. And uh, then it can start to leak these enzymes into the abdominal cavity. uh, uh, The liver is right there. The stomach's right there. So Mm. it's not unusual to see uh, these really severe symptoms develop fairly quickly. So basically, the cells of the pancreas start dissolving. uh, The cells in the liver can start being affected. We can see elevated liver enzymes. Um, And if it gets untreated, it can lead to shock and even death in some animals. Mm When we see the symptoms of the animals typically coming in, we're gonna have, they're going to come in with fever and vomiting are the, the main ones we see. Yeah. Diarrhea is not unusual. Not eating would be a, another symptom just because they're painful.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Dehydration because they've not been able to hold down any water. Uh, fatigue. Because, again, they're dehydrated they're not eating well. Yeah. Abdominal pain can be one of the key things. Mm-hmm. If I'm palpating their belly and they're sore, then I know that, that there's something there. But the abdominal pain may just manifest as depression. Yeah. They just may seem a little bit uh, less active than they usually are. Difficulty breathing can also be another sign of pain that we might mm-hmm. see. And in cats, this disease tends to be more chronic. So weight loss is uh, okay. an, an, a common finding that we'll see in cats with pancreatitis. The causes... Uh, Are varied. Uh, The most common one we see in dogs is nutritional. Mm -hmm. A fatty diet, usually including table scraps, usually around the holidays, Mm -hmm. um, leads leads to problems. And it can also be induced by trauma to the pancreas. They get hit Mm. by a car if they fall down some stairs. If they're roughhousing with another animal and they get, you know, kind of a hard hit to the yeah. abdomen,
1: I was gonna say I've seen a few um, come out of doggy daycare and they were roughhousing with other yeah. dogs, and then the owners bring them in. They're like they're vomiting, diarrhea, seem painful that they hurt themselves, and the pancreatitis test is positive,
0: right? And that's all it takes. Sometimes it's just some trauma there. We also see it related to certain drugs and toxins can irritate the pancreas. Mm. So it's always important to find out what medications they're on. Is there anything new we've started? Because those can be associated with it. And one of the things I found when studying, when researching this, is scorpion stings are associated with pancreatitis. Really? So there's a toxin in the scorpion stings that. Cause inflammation in there and, and uh, lead to the, the problems. Huh. There are certain breeds that seem to be more susceptible to the dietary forms of pancreatitis. Miniature Schnauzers. Of if we see vomiting <laughs> miniature Schnauzer, we're going to think pancreatitis until we've been proved otherwise. <laughs> miniature Poodles and Cocker Spaniels are, are the big ones. Of course, those um, in cats, we do see it associated with uh, uh, infections with Toxoplasma. Okay. So that's a protozoan parasite that cats are the definitive host for, and these can get into there. It can cause a wide variety of symptoms in cats, but pancreatitis is one of the ones. So if we have a cat we've diagnosed pancreatitis in, we're going to maybe want to check for that. Because Toxoplasma is one of those diseases that can also be affected to people. Yeah. So we want to see that. Cats that aren't vaccinated will think feline distemper. That's also been associated with pancreatitis. In cats, we also see pancreatitis associated with intestinal disease and liver disease. So they can have an uh, inflammatory bowel disease. They can have hepatitis. And they have actually named this triaditis. triaditis. So three inflammations at once.
1: Huh.
0: It's also associated with diabetes as well. Because if there's something that's causing the pancreas not to secrete enough enzymes... It can be uh, enough insulin. It can also be affecting the enzymes and causing inflammation. So inflammation is a source of, of uh, diabetes and mellitus in, in the cats and dogs. In um, cats, the big breed with associated with the chronic pancreatitis is Siamese cats. <laughs> Female cats tend to be more affected, and it tends to affect mostly older cats yes. as well. So our diagnosis is going to be based on history and exam. Mm-hmm. We're going to be looking how dehydrated is the animal. Are they painful when we're palpating their, their belly?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we're going to do a full lab panel, and we're going to look at several things in there. Um, we'll sometimes see elevated pancreatic enzymes, and we used to check leg pace and amylase a lot. But now we're doing a new test, uh, the CPL test, which is much more sensitive. There's also FPL test for cats, so canine pancrea pancrea pancreatic lipase immunoreactivity and then the feline version of that. Not we can sometimes, we'll do x-rays because if there's a tumor associated or something like that, And mm-hmm. dogs, gallstones have been associated with pancreatitis. Mm-hmm. You can also look for signs of abdominal trauma that might indicate, hey, there's mm-hmm. something really traumatizing or maybe some fluid in the abdomen. Look for signs of uh, intestinal foreign bodies, uh, something that could be causing obstruction. If you get a foreign body right where the enzymes are supposed to empty into the intestinal tract, then they back up in the pancreas and cause Didn't pancreatitis. Didn't we just have that? We had a dog that we, were, we thought might, that might have been the case. Yeah. So it had come in initially for pancreatitis, and then when it came in, uh, and it got better when we treated that, but then later on, it started developing symptoms of an intestinal foreign body. Yeah. And they did find some foreign bodies in the abdomen, hmm. but the, probably that pancreatitis was associated with that foreign body. Wow. So, um, ultrasound can be a very useful tool for diagnosing it because they can actually see the inflammation in the pancreas with the ultrasound machine. Mm. Whereas on an x-ray, we'll sometimes see sort of a fuzzy area in the area of the pancreas. It's not very distinctive. Yeah. Uh, and before we had ultrasound in every veterinary (laughs) hospital that's that was well this looks a little fuzzy we probably got pancreatitis but that's that's one of the ways we can do it um i don't we don't rely on the the pancreatic enzymes as much either because we found that a lot of animals are just dehydrated would have elevated pancreatic enzymes so unless they're like twice normal uh range Mm. it wasn't usually a diagnostic uh parameter we could rely on so treatment is going to be supportive care um So we're going to rehydrate them with fluid therapy. Mm -hmm. We don't want to give them anything to eat because if they eat, it's going to stimulate their pancreas to produce more enzymes. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to releasing more enzymes or activating more enzymes, especially while there's inflammation in there. So we're going to withhold food for at least a day, sometimes more. And then we're going to do a really bland diet. Yeah. So either one of the prescription diets like the ID or using rice mm-hmm. uh, can be very bland. Uh, a lot of people like to put in boiled hamburger. I don't like to use boiled hamburger. There's still too much fat in there for yeah. me. I'd rather use some boiled chicken if you want to get a little protein in there. But usually just the rice is going to be fine. Yeah. Um, we're going to want to restrict their activity because they are painful, painful. And the more they move around, the more they can irritate that. Uh, we're going to give antiemetics, which basically suppress vomiting. Um, so those are important because the more they vomit, the more that causes irritation mm-hmm. in their abdominal cavity and, and the more, and it can be really painful for them. And pain medication is essential too. We want to treat yeah. this pain because that's part of the problem they're, they're having and why they're feel, not wanting to eat. We want to make sure we remove any medications we think might be associated with the disease, in cats, we have used steroids to reduce the inflammation. And I think they've used it in dogs too. We don't typically do that, but if we think there's a very inflamed pancreas, giving them a little bit of steroids can be very well, helpful, yeah. especially a short acting steroid. Uh, prevention <laughs> if you've got a breed that's susceptible, yep. there are some things you can do. Any dog can get pancreatitis, so this is important. Keeping their weight down. Mm-hmm. We tend to see this more in overweight dogs. Yep avoid high-fat diets, avoid mm-hmm. those table scraps, avoid giving them the gravy and, those, mm-hmm. and the meat scraps that you're going to just take off your plate because that's the dogs that are going to come in the next day to the clinic with the uh-huh. vomiting and need to be treated.
1: Yeah, if it was if our food was made for them, they, we'd pull up a chair to the table for them to eat with us. It's exactly. not okay for them. <laughs>
0: And it doesn't take much. It just takes sometimes Mm -hmm. one little piece of fat off your plate, and then that that miniature is now just going to be in the next thing. Now I want to move on to, uh, we're ready to move on to the pet health news. So pet health news, really interesting stories this week. Um, This one is like something I'm hoping is really on the horizon. Basically, feline infectious peritonitis is a disease we see Mm -hmm. not that common, but we've had a couple cats with this in the last couple months. Neither of them are doing very well. One of them did pass away. The other one is just clinging. Yeah. We're kind of treating them symptomatically. Researchers got together at the Wynn Feline Foundation at the FIP Symposium recently, and they're saying that the disease should be able to lose its lethal label soon. So we should be able to take this from a fatal to a treatable disease. Soon. They actually have drugs, and then we'll go through the article, that can treat this disease. They're not approved for cats. They're not available for cats. And there's reasons why we'll explain to you a little bit later. But um, they're going to be available. And uh, Dr. Niels Peterson from um, UC Davis uh, says, basically, this is something we should be able to treat at Mm. some point. And he's been around a while. He's really involved in the feline viral diseases. So, basically, there's two approaches they have for treating FIP, not just treating the cat. Mm-hmm. One is to stimulate the cat's immune system so that it can attack the virus itself. Oh. The problem with FIP is the disease is caused by the immune system overreacting to the virus right. and causing these immune complexes which damage the blood vessels, causing inflammation there, vasculitis, and causes fluid to leak out into the tissues. Mm-hmm. And then we get uh, that or it forms granulomas, and that's the dry form, but the fluid buildup is the wet form. Um, the other category of treatments are specific and non-specific antiviral drugs. So non-specific antiviral drugs are very toxic, and mm-hmm. they can include some drugs. Uh, there's an antifungal called um, itraconazole, which has antiviral properties. The problem is you have to give the cat toxic amounts of that drug in order to kill the virus. Oh, so it's not a very effective treatment. You can cure the FIP and kill them it's of good drug good. toxicity. Oh. But there are some specific antivirals that may hold more promise. So, drug companies are always coming up with these antivirals. So, so he's always watching for these to see uh, what might be effective so he can maybe test them. Hmm. Um, they are, the specific ones are typically smaller molecules. They target specific viral proteins. So, one antiviral might only work against one specific virus. Hmm. But it works really well with minimal side effects to the host. Hmm. So there's a couple that have been shown efficacy in treating FIP in cats. Neither has FDA approval, which is really important because yeah. we can't, they're not even available for us to buy for yeah. treating something else right now. Um, the first drug is called, it's a noted GC376. That was acquired by AntiVive Life Sciences. And they've begun the process of the FDA approval, which Ooh. is lengthy. So it may be five ten years before we see that on the market for cats. Yeah, they're
1: getting somewhere.
0: Yeah, but unfortunately, this drug is not as hopeful as another one, Hmm. mainly because of some potential problems they've been seeing in the testing phases. So they Uh go through several phases, one to see how toxic it is, how well the animals tolerate it. There's another drug called GS441524. And the problem is there's a little bit more complication than that. Um, This has been um, developed by a company called Gilead Sciences. And they're developing it as a treatment for the Ebola virus. Which is an RNA virus, a distant relative of the coronavirus. So they're kind of both RNA viruses. So we can hope that maybe if one affects one RNA virus, it would affect another. And treatments for Ebola are certainly, you know, in the high demand right now because there's still Ebola being yeah. coming out of Africa and there is no specific treatment for that right now. So he reached out to the drug to see if they could get a hold of that drug or some of the other Variations of it that they sometimes develop to see, and it took a while to get it sorted out. When they did some research against it, in an experimental FIP, they found it to be highly eff- effective.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so they promised the the promising results from the field trial, and basically through the process, they were led to believe that there's if there's there something of importance to the animal, that there'd be a chance to be granted the animal rights if not them, somebody else, that Gilead would go ahead and do this. Mm. So they were waiting, and it had been a while. And then after a while, the company Gilead came back and said they weren't going to let them or anyone else be granted the animal rights. Mm. And this is because they discovered in the meantime that the compound is very promising for Ebola. Uh. So if someone's working on this as a treatment for this FIP in cats and they find a problem, that can screw up their trials for Ebola. Ebola. So they don't want to risk losing this as a potential drug for Ebola because yeah. some cat got sick on the trial, mm-hmm. and they had to report it. So basically, they're just going to go approval uh, approval for the Ebola and for people, and if uh, if they were to not let anyone do the research on cats. Now, what happens when a company comes out with a drug like this that is promising for something else, and they're not going to give the rights? somebody else is going to okay. try and knock it off uh-huh. and that's what's been happening there are some companies in Asia not reliable companies i don't know if i would buy my drugs from the manufacturers in asia that have duplicated this molecule
1: hmm. and
0: are selling it to cat owners around so
1: they the world. are selling it already they
0: are selling it on the black market hmm. so it's illegal for you to use this to treat cats with this which is why i would probably not recommend this as a source of treatment for yeah. somebody There are veterinarians like me that won't do that. There are some veterinarians that will, if the owners can get a hold of this drug, will treat the cat with it, Hmm. knowing that this cat's going to die anyway. So what's the worst that can happen if you give this drug? To me, the worst that can happen is you can lose your license. Yeah. Especially if something horrible goes wrong and the people decide to to report to it. And did I say,
1: is this drug just like an injection or something?
0: They don't say. I would assume it's some sort of injection. Um, But the overall mood at this symposium is optimistic. They feel... Uh, if not this um, GS4401524, then some other drug is certainly yeah. going to be coming down the pipeline soon. And maybe with the GC376, they will be able to work out the kinks, whether it's with dosing or the form or some little tweak to the molecule that needs to be to make it uh, treatable. So FIP, in my career, is going to be treatable, which nice. is awesome. So I'm um, really looking forward to that coming forward. Cool. But I just want to let people know, if you hear anything on the, online, you see something about this drug, Yes, it has been shown to be effective. Your vet may not want to do it. Mm-hmm. There's just too many legal things, that hoops and stuff that they might put through. So, yeah. But we're not going to say not not to do this yeah. if you want to try and save your cat. But it's – and you don't know what you're getting if you're ordering something online, too. Yeah. Someone may say it's this drug and you get it and it's absolutely nothing yeah, or maybe a poison.
1: Yeah, you could just be getting like some P12 or so something. So unfortunately,
0: at this point, all we can do is keep the cats as comfortable as we can. But knowing in the future we'll be able to treat this is going to make a lot of a lot of kittens very healthy.
1: Yeah. So I do just want to ask, and this just could be me. I don't know if anybody else is questioning this. So are only small domesticated cats can get the FIP, or is it like large lions, tigers, things like that? As yeah, well? that's a good question.
0: I don't know the answer to that.
1: Huh.
0: Uh, well, I'll take a look and see. Um, it's a FIP is not directly contagious from animal to animal. Uh, it's a mutation from the feline enteric coronavirus. Oh, okay. So this infects the intestinal tract. It causes diarrhea. Very common in cats. But about 1 in a 100 cats are infected with the enteric mm. coronavirus. The virus undergoes a mutation. turns into the feline infectious peritonitis form. Okay. And then that is when it gets inside the body and the blood system and causes this vasculitis reaction.
1: Huh, okay.
0: So if you have an FIP cat, you can assure that no other cat's going to get FIP from them. They might get the entire coronavirus because they can shed that for months after they've been infected, but it's not directly contagious. Okay. But I would I would expect that it could possibly affect the bigger cats okay, and the right. other cats okay. as well. All right, the next story is kind of neat. This is something that you may be able to help participate in mm-hmm. to help not only dogs but people. So let me explain. This is called the Dog Aging Project, and they're looking for 10,000 pup, pup. volunteers. And this, this study is hoping to help all dogs live longer. Ooh. So it's um, basically it's a joint uh, project operated by the University of Washington School of Medicine and the Texas A&M University College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. I did say that ten times fast. <laughs> so they're looking to create a national, actually an international community of dogs, owners, veterinarians, researchers, volunteers, all working to advance knowledge about how genes, habits, and the environment affect dogs' aging. Oh. So they're looking for volunteers, ten thousands of them. So to be considered for this, all you have to do is go to their website. And I'm going to give you, it's dogagingproject.org, all one word, dogagingproject.org. And we'll give that again at the end. Go to that website, and there's a, a portal there where you can try and sign up. So they'll screen you and see if you are eligible to participate in a project. Okay. So it involves creating a secure user sign on, providing comprehensive health and lifestyle information about the dog through questionnaires, and sharing a veterinary medical records. Okay. And we'd be happy to do that. Anyone wants to do that, we'll, <laughs> we'll help help you out with that. And they're looking for dogs of all ages, sizes, breeds, sexes. They want dogs all healthy levels from locations across the globe. So the owners who do complete the nomination process will become Dog Aging Project Citizen Scientists and their <laughs> dogs will become members of the Dog Aging Project Pack. So you really are going to be providing data to this project. Huh, that's they're cool. going to be doing genetic screens on all the animals. And it's going to run for ten years. Wow. And they're going to put this into an open data platform so anybody who wants to study this data will be able to access it no charge. So aging is a major um, cause of most h- common diseases like cancer, heart problems. Dogs age more rapidly than people do and get many of our same diseases, mm-hmm. including cognitive decline. So their healthspan researcher and project leader, Matt Kaberline, a professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine, said that they share our living environment and have a diverse genetic makeup like people. Yeah. So the project is going to broadly affect not only aging in dogs, but they also help in people. people. Huh. So it's the largest of its kind ever undertaken. And the four main goals are finding predictors of disease. They're going to conduct a genome sequencing on all the canines. They're going to create standardized assessments for canine aging. (laughs) And they're going to create safe medication options to improve a dog's quality and length of life. So again, all one word, dogagingproject.org. D-O-G-A-G-I-N-G-P-R-O-J-E-C-T dot O-R-G. Um, and we'll put a link up on our website, too. So if anyone wants to do that, yeah. that's the place to go. Yeah,
1: do that. Let us know if you do that because we would love to follow that. Yeah, we, that we'll, we'll put you up as
0: one of the, the dogs on our yeah. wall being in this project. <laughs> um, so we'll find. We'll report back in 10 years what they found. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the next story comes, again, this is from uh, overseas, but I always find these really neat stories. This is dog named Bear.
1: love
0: this. And he is a koala-sniffing dog.
1: Fabulous. <laughs> he's a Border
0: collie coolie mix uh, with striking blue eyes, and he works with the Detection Dogs for Conservation. And he's been specially trained to sniff out displaced, sick, orphaned, and injured koalas. Mm-hmm. And recently in Australia, I guess there's been a lot of bushfires, which yeah. is displacing a lot of koalas and mm-hmm. trapping a lot of them. Yeah. They're getting caught at the tops of burning trees and things like this. Yeah, I think they they've recently
1: been put on the endangered list yeah. because of all the fires.
0: Well, they predict that hundreds of koalas have already died in the fires. Mm-hmm. And bear is there for the ones that have survived. So the, the idea of bear of dogs rescuing koala seems simple, but it's really not an easy job. Okay. And koala dete- detection needs dogs to be dis- disinterested in people, hyper focused and without a prey drive. Luckily, bear meets all these requirements. Mm. So he was brought in a year, uh, for assessment at a year of age. And within minutes, the team that trains these dogs knew they had a winner. <laughs> they saw he was high energy, obsessive, he doesn't like to be touched and is completely uninterested in people, huh. which makes him not really a good candidate for adoption. Yeah. So this is weird that animals that aren't for good for adoption, they there may be a, a job for them that yeah. they are ideally suited for. But that does not that's okay. He's, he's a happy dog. These qualities make him the perfect candidate for a detection dog.
1: Oh, that's good.
0: So he's um, highly focused on his ball, which is his reward. So having that high focus is, is the way that they're able to train him. And he has zero prey drive. So he has no interest in the animals once he sends them out, um, which is ideal for a wildlife detection dog. He yeah. focuses purely on the scent, ignoring the animal completely. So mm-hmm. unlike most other koala detection dogs, sniff out the koala scat, which for uh, you people there is the, the koala poop. <laughs> and he's trained to find. He's trained to find the live koalas, which makes him more effective in the natural disasters like the fires. Yeah. So he can detect and lead reacher, researchers or rescuers to the living koalas, even if they're at the top of burnt trees. Wow. He's got a great sense of smell. That is a great sense of
1: smell. He's been smell. putting
0: those uh, skills to work. I think he's been working for, what, about six, six years, years here? Six years, yeah. Or five years. He, you know, he's now six, so he's been working for five years. And he's working all across these areas of bushfires. So, um... Congratulations, to Bear! Good job.
1: That's impressive. And keep
0: going. And um, it's nice when we we have an animal that you know is not going to be finding a home with people, but mm-hmm. he he has a job that he loves and he's very well, good it at.
1: Still ends up happily. That's good.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our case of the week. So this case of the week is something that I, I wanted to talk about a while ago because we we diagnosed Margot a while back. She's. Um, Came in for a follow-up about a week ago, and the follow-up was good. So when she first came in as a puppy, we noticed she had a very severe heart murmur. Mm -hmm. And when we hear puppies with heart murmurs, we think of several really bad things. Uh, They can have a PDA, which is called a patent ductus arteriosus. Those murmurs tend to be more continuous. Um, They can have a ventricular septal defect, which is a hole between the chambers of the hearts. And that's normal when they're puppies in the uterus because that's how the circulation bypasses the lungs. But when they are birthed, then that's supposed to seal up. The other thing that can happen is they can get a narrowing of their pulmonary um, artery, which is the main artery that goes to the lungs. It's hmm. called a pulmonary stenosis. So when their heart is pumping out the, the blood, the ventricles are pumping, their that makes this um, whooshing sound when we listen to it. So the only way really to definitively diagnose is to get an ultrasound. So Margo's owners decided they were going to get the ultrasound and see if it was something they had to worry about. And the uh, ultrasound people did diagnose a pulmonic stenosis on okay. her. So basically, the treatment is to go in and do a cardiac balloon procedure.
1: Hmm.
0: So they actually feed a balloon catheter into her veins, into the right side of her heart. They can get that right into the pulmonary artery. And then they expand that balloon out to stretch out the pulmonary artery where it's narrowed. Wow. So they're able to do this. It's something they do at the University of Illinois, which is where Margo went. And they do it routinely. In fact, the ultrasound tech had a dog with the same problem. And she said really? that's where she took her dog. Wow. And he's doing pretty well. Um, prior to that, we had started um, Margo on a uh, beta blocker, which is a drug that helps slow the heart rate down. Mm-hmm. The slower that it is, the more effectively it can pump the blood. And she'll probably have to stay in that beta blocker the rest of her life, according to the cardiologist. They think that she'll probably do fine. They're going to continue to monitor her. But she should be able to have a pretty decent lifespan. Yay, if not a full life, good. but certainly a little lot longer than she would have if they hadn't had anything done. Mm. Typically, if you don't have anything done, by the time they get to the larger six to eight months of age, they're already in heart failure.
1: Oh.
0: And so it causes buildup of, of uh, fluid in the abdomen huh. from a... Asides and stuff How like that. How old is she? So right now she's five months, five and a half months old. She's oh. actually becoming coming in next month to get spayed. So Yay. she got clearance for the anesthesia for the spay, which was the the big thing we were worried oh my. about. So, I, you know, I can still hear the murmur. It's still still there. It's a little bit softer than it was before, so I can tell it certainly has something done. And our heart rate is certainly much better, too, with the medication. That's good. So we're really excited to, to be able to report on that. Yay,
1: glad. So if you do
0: have a puppy or a kitten that comes in with a heart murmur,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, make sure you get it checked out. Um, I've certainly had the animals that have not gotten checked out, and they yes. have gone into heart failure.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, sometimes they will go away on their own. So I have had animals where we hear a heart murmur when they're two or three months of age. When they come in, at six months for their spades. So, so, that could be one of those ventricular septal defects. Uh, the PDAs are less common. I've diagnosed one of those in my career and uh, almost got to do surgery on it, but the owner's kind of backed out last minute and that one to come uh, through. So, time for tech tips, yep. which is your favorite part of it. <laughs> and this one we thought was really important to, to do before the holidays because yep. you're going to talk about when you have an animal coming to visit you Mm -hmm. that's not a normal part of your household yes you may or may not have pets Mm -hmm. in your house
1: so before like for thanksgiving i kind of did you know taking your pet with you on the road things like that um but for the people who are expecting those pets from the road you know what to expect in your house especially if you have other animals um so one thing would be you know confirming with your family members that their pets do get along with other pets before bringing them into the house unfortunately we do see a lot of cases where you know they brought a dog in, dog doesn't do well with a cat yeah. and now we're seeing a cat because the cat's injured um or we you know get two dogs get together and you know oh yeah my dog doesn't do well with other dogs so right. now they have two dogs they got into a fight and that's something that we do unfortunately commonly see around this time of year. Um, So, you know, making sure with your family that they test these things before you just bring a pet into their house um you know always making sure that each pet has a safe place to go to right um you know the new pet is going to definitely come into the house try to mm-hmm. sniff out the area
0: or bring their, their kennel with them
1: mm-hmm. making sure you yeah. bring your you know their things to make them feel comfortable right. kennel blankets beds anything with your scent your house is scent, to make them feel calm and more relaxed um a lot of things you know you have to expect if you bring somebody into your house and then they just start going through your things you're really not going to appreciate it so you have to imagine your pet is not either. So if you walk in and you jump on my bed. I'm going to try to push you off mm-hmm. you should expect the same thing with your dog as well so if you have two large dogs you have to slowly introduce each other right. um, you know again make sure you bring your other pets bed so they can each have their own bed so they're not fighting for one yeah. um, and then and probably just, food
0: bowls I would think uh-huh, too. Food,
1: you know definitely sometimes even feeding in separate rooms right um, because most people don't realize that some dogs can get food aggressive and if you have a dog for six seven years that has been in the house by themselves and now you have another dog come in yeah. these are are things that sometimes you don't know
0: and same thing with treats and toys
1: uh-huh you these are just yeah you, things you yeah. don't know until you actually get into the situation so these are things you want to be kind of prepared for right. um, when you're bringing other animals in the house um, we do have some owners who will bring a cat to a family member's house and this is something that i personally know because one of the people i pets sit for her sister will bring the cat to the house when they travel mm-hmm. together and the sister's cat's hates the other one's cats and so they do the best to put the cats in separate parts of the house um but recently the last time i went there they were gone for 15 days and yeah and so the cats were starting to try to get closer and closer to each other and they can hear each other through the door because they were getting more vocal and the one cat of course the sister's cat stopped eating started vomiting um she actually ended up coming in here because towards the last 13 14 days or the last, yeah, two three days, right. she was not happy because she knew those other cats were there. And you know, two days at home, then she's doing better because she's back in her normal environment. I will say, mom did a fabulous job. She brought three beds for the cat, uh, multiple litter boxes, all of her favorite That's food. Yeah. Mm hmm. She even brought her uh, her brush and put it on an area where she knew the cat can sit down and brush herself. Right. Um. So mom did very good at making sure you know she was comfortable. But you also have to remember, this cat hates other cats. So the fact that she started knowing that there were other ones in that house, Mm -hmm. it kind of threw her off of her routine. So that's something to be expected, too. So if you think you're going to be gone for long periods of time and you want to bring your pet with you, you have to be prepared for them to be kind of off for a few days. Um, You know, cats are like, and dogs, too, they like routine. And when you throw off their routine, sometimes it can, you know... They can stop eating. This one, she had some vomiting for a few days because her stomach was empty and she wasn't eating at yeah. that point. Um, but then she got home, mom says she's doing great right now. She's happy, healthy. Um, but these are just things that most well, people don't think about. Well,
0: and it is important to have someone watching them because if they do mm-hmm. have health issues, you want to go make sure they can get to a veterinarian. Exactly. I think also something else you should consider when you're traveling with your pet, make sure they have a microchip ID Mm
1: -hmm.
0: or at least an ID tag or collar because they're in a different environment. They get loose. They're going to try and get home. Yeah. And you hear about these animals that go cross-country to get home. They get lost and they're going to jump out of the car. But the pollen's going to find them first. And if you have the microchip ID... Your was it two hundred times more like it's it's an yeah. insane amount more likely to get, get them back. To get them back.
1: Yeah, well, and then making sure that they're vaccinated as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to take animals and bring them together, the last thing you want to do is yeah. you know bring one who's not vaccinated, and now everyone in the house is sick. And
0: if they're on medication, make sure you have enough medication to travel with mm-hmm. them. I get this all the time. Can you please phone in a prescription? I'm in Michigan. And <laughs> I don't have my meds. I have no meds. Right. So make sure you get plenty of meds to bring with you. Mm-hmm. That you have
1: those. And then. Make Making sure when you're traveling with them to store them properly Um, for like people with diabetes. I knew when I traveled with my uh, diabetic dog, I actually had a cooler that sat in my car with ice packs and everything for her insulin and her needles. Like people get in the car thinking I packed a lunch or something and it was my dog's medication. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that was, you know, what we needed to get her for uh, our week of travel. And so these are things, you know, most people don't, again, don't think about when you're thinking about travel because you're thinking more of yourself and you also got to think of the animals too. Um, yeah. So yeah, just simple things and yeah, again, warn your family or whoever you're going to visit with that you're making sure you're bringing that you're bringing your pet because oh, yeah, they need show. to prepare yeah. themselves
0: yeah they need to make sure i mean if they if they don't have even had pets in their house they want to make sure they get things out of there. it's like baby proofing house you mm-hmm. want to pet proof it
1: you want to pet proof get rid it. of
0: some plants that they might chew on mm-hmm. make sure there's no exposed cords they might be getting mm-hmm. onto. you want like to
1: make that. sure that someone in the neighborhood is not using rat poison or anything right. um, because a lot of times that is uh it is fatal if a dog gets into it and you don't know mm-hmm. um this is something that you know if they don't have have a pet they're not really thinking about you know oh i shouldn't have rat poison out, yeah. and then your dog goes in and gets to their rat poison
0: and if you're traveling somewhere warm in the winter and your pet's not on flea and tick preventive you uh-huh. better have that better because, make sure because you they're have coming it. back with some extra pets if you
1: don't mm-hmm well,
0: those are a lot of great tips. And, and certainly if you're traveling, ask your vet if they have any other suggestions and um, check in with your vet techs as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to be moving to a different uh, part of the body, to the neck, to the thyroid right, gland right. specifically. And there's actually uh, two conditions we see in, in, with thyroid disease. Hypothyroidism, which we'll talk about next week. And this primarily affects dogs. And then there's hyperthyroidism. Um, which is overactive thyroid, and that primarily affects cats. Good. They both affect people the same, but it seems in the animal world, dogs got the uh, the hypothyroid yeah. and cats got the hyperthyroid. <laughs> the short end of the stick. So we'll talk a little bit about how uh, that's diagnosed early next week. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. Okay, bye. bye bye. You've been listening to the Pet Factor with Dr. Jim Hosek and